since it debuted in 2011, uh, Game of Thrones, HBO's Game of Thrones, has been a hit with audiences. Any Game of Thrones fans here this morning? Any Game of Thrones fans who are ashamed to admit that they're Game of Thrones here this morning? I figure there were at least a couple. Uh, if you're not familiar with the show, it takes place in the mythical continents of Westeros and Esso. Uh, for hundreds of years, the land has been ruled by the Targaryen monarchy, which has assembled together the Seven Kingdoms. The Targaryen kings have ruled from atop the Iron Throne, which is a seat made of the swords of defeated enemies forged by dragonfire. Before the show begins, the mad king, Aegon I Targaryen, he's been assassinated and his family exiled. And what follows is the Game of Thrones, in which uh, warring families plot to connive uh, and arrange one of their own to sit on the throne. There are many men and women who desire the power and the prestige of sitting atop the Iron Throne. Everybody in Westeros knows, however, that they are all usurpers. They are not Targaryens, who alone have the right. As a matter of fact, it is rumored that the now deceased King Aegon I is alleged to have a Targaryen heir or two. Somewhere out in Westeros is the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, someone who can end the bloodshed and unite the kingdoms. But who is the rightful heir? Where is the rightful heir? When will he or she return? Will Westeros even survive to see the return of the rightful heir before it is destroyed by civil war? Have I gotten you excited about the show? <laughs> now, I, I didn't actually watch Game of Thrones. I honestly actually tried, uh, but I found, honestly, I found the, 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 the violence and the nudity a bit distracting. Instead, I had one of our staff members, Heather Gain, she's the director of communications. She summarized the plot for me. She's a, uh, a big fan of um, Game of Thrones and violence and nudity. Um, <laughs> but is, is Heather here this morning? Yeah, big fan of violence and nudity, right? Yeah, woo, violence and nudity. Um, but I know enough of the plot of Game of Thrones uh, to recognize that it tells a familiar tale, that of a people desperate for a true king, a rightful heir. We have seen this story before. In fact, we've seen it in the Bible. The Bible itself tells the story of a people ruled by a dynasty that falls apart, leaving them at war and at loss. They wait eagerly, desperately, for a rightful heir to return, and they have to put up with an awful lot while they wait. And at long last, he does return. But in the Bible, the rightful heir returns in a manner that the people didn't expect, and he returns in a manner that makes them wonder if maybe they should wait for another rightful heir. Of course, I am describing to you Jesus... <laughs> Jesus is the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, the nation of Israel. We've been talking about Jesus this summer in our current sermon series, Summer in the Sun. There it is. Uh, we talk about a lot here at Rooftop, but we want to make sure that we're always talking about Jesus more than anything else. We're Christians. We follow Christ. So during this series, we've been trying to get to know Jesus better. And in order to get to know Jesus better, we're talking about some of the names that people use of him in the Bible. You can tell a lot about a person by understanding their names. And Jesus goes by a lot of names in the Bible. Son of God, Son of Man, Christ, I Am, Prophet, Teacher, all names that we've discussed this summer. And one of the names that Jesus goes by is the title Son of David. 
Now, honestly, the title Son of David is actually not one of the more common titles used in reference to Christ in Scripture. It occurs only about 11 times, which compared to other titles like Son of God or Son of Man, you know, more favored titles of Jesus are used much more commonly. Uh, We don't use the title Son of David today. We don't pray to the Son of David. We don't uh, sing songs to David's kid. In fact, a lot of us here this morning might not even know who David is. Son of David who? Or son of David whom? Uh, Son of David Swimmer? Son of David Cameron? Son of David Bowie? David who? None of those, by the way. That's not who we're talking about. Interestingly, Jesus never uses the title Son of David in reference to himself. It's not a title he uses about himself. But he accepts the title and doesn't prevent other people from using it of him when they do. Like in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, when Jesus is walking by a a blind man and a a mute man, and they hear that Jesus is in town, and they scream out, uh, Have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus doesn't say, No, 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 not my title, not my title. Jesus kind of accepts it and heals them. Uh, Or after Jesus heals a possessed man and the crowd say, Could this be the son of David? Or when Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem on the week of his death and the crowds chant, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 shh, 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 not my title. He accepts it. So there's only a handful of times the title is used, but even though it's used sparingly, it's still an important title to discuss if we want to get to know who Jesus is and more importantly, who he wants to be in our lives. So that's what I want to talk about with you for a few moments. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of David, and why should we care? So in order to answer that question, though, and explain what in the world this has to do with Game of Thrones, I have to lay some groundwork. Now, for some of you, this will be old material, for some of this will be new material, but old or new, I think it'll be beneficial and helpful. So, here we go. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a member of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has been around a long time. It's that little, little sliver of a nation over in the Middle East. The uh, origins of Israel are uh, in large part described in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Now, many, 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 many centuries before Jesus lived, you might say that according to uh, the history of Scripture, Israel had a sort of heyday. Uh, you might say they ruled the seven kingdoms. They had conquered their enemies to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. Westeros was theirs. They did so under the leadership of a legendary king, a man named David. David was not Israel's first king, but he was their best king. He was a man after God's own heart, to whom God had given power and talent. Uh, For many years, David led them well, with a strong heart, firm fist, sharp sword. David was not perfect, of course, late in his life. David had some problems with, you know, oh, murder, uh, adultery, polygamy. But David was humble before God, and he, he knew he served only at God's pleasure. In fact, God promised to sustain David's line on the throne of Israel forever. On the day of David's inauguration to the throne, It's actually recorded that God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would rule rule Israel for all time. As the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel records, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you 
who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. Now that prophecy, that prediction, uh, wasn't just meant to, wasn't just understood to mean that David's son would rule on the throne after him. It was understood to mean that someone in David's line would rule forever on a throne that would never be destroyed. The house of David would rule on the throne forever, says God. That's something bigger than next in line. Now eventually David dies, and the monarchy continues with David's son Solomon. Solomon rules in wisdom, at least for a few years, but then eventually he is corrupted. Too much sex with too many women. He would have been a big Game of Thrones fan himself, him and Heather. <laughs> Solomon's son. Solomon's son is even worse. And for the next 400 years or so, Israel is ruled by descendants of David who are more or less righteous. Uh, some aren't half bad, some are actually pretty good, and some are just disasters. Kind of like presidents and popes. Some aren't that bad, some are really good, and some are just disasters. Now, after a long stretch of really terrible Davidic descendants, though, eventually the nation of Israel becomes so weak uh, that they are overtaken by their enemies. First the Assyrians come in, take over Israel, then the Babylonians come in, take over Israel, then the Greeks come in, take over Israel, and then the Romans come in, take over Israel. The royal Davidic line is broken entirely. The Iron Throne sits empty. And with no one sitting on the Iron Throne, the nation falls apart. Falls upon incredibly hard times. The nation actually splits in two. Jerusalem, their capital, is overtaken violently and destroyed violently several times. The nation falls into idolatry and paganism. The people of Israel are actually exiled to foreign lands. Centuries after their heyday, Israel has become just a, um, an impoverished little nation that's barely a nation that's just kind of swatted around from one violent oppressor to the next. All the while, the people of Israel, at least those that are left, remember the prophecy. The prophecy that one from the house of David will sit on the throne forever. They yearn for the day when that will happen. They yearn for the day of their conquering king, the rightful Targaryen heir. But there is no one waiting in the wings. There's no heir apparent. They're barely even a nation anymore. To be sure, now Israel eventually does get kings again. After the nation of, or the, the Roman Empire takes over Israel, uh, Rome actually installs a king for Israel. His name is Herod. You might have heard of the Herods. The Herods are appointed by Rome to be the kings of Israel in the first century, but they are not true kings. The Herods are actually client kings. They're basically employees of Rome, appointed to oversee Israel. They're not even from the line of David. Get this, they're not even Jewish. They're from another nation entirely, the nation of Edom. And the Herods... Herod the Great, Herod his son, Herod Antipater, uh, they are violent and cruel. You might remember this story, for example, in the Gospels, when King Herod the Great hears about a baby born in Bethlehem who has certain kingly qualities. What does he do? Oh, well, let's go kill all the baby boys. It's Herod the Great. His son, Herod Antipater, he does this. Uh, he has John the Baptist uh, beheaded, beheaded, um, when John the Baptist has the audacity to tell uh, Herod uh, Antipater that he should not be sleeping with his sister-in-law. The nerve. John the Baptist says, you shouldn't do that. Uh, Herod says, oh, well, off with your head. 
they would have been huge Game of Thrones fans. So Israel had been without a king for hundreds of years, and when they finally get one, they get the Herods, who were brutal and depressive and not what God had in mind. But even then, they didn't give up hope. They remembered the prophecy. They waited for a different king. They waited for the rightful heir, someone to restore the seven kingdoms, the 12 tribes of Israel, but it had been a long time, a thousand years since the reign of David, 600 years since any of his descendants had sat on the throne. Do prophecies even matter after 600 years? That's your background. And I needed to give you the background because the background begins to explain some things. The background explains some things we need, uh, we read in the New Testament. When a man with Messiah-like qualities named Jesus appears on the scene. The background explains, for starters, the commotion at Jesus' appearance. When rumors begin to swirl of a miracle-working preacher in Galilee who talks like a king about restoring Israel, the people get excited. The Jews are desperate to know if this is the rightful heir to the throne because they know that the guy currently sitting on the throne, King Herod, is not him. They, that's why they head out to the countryside in droves to see if Jesus of Nazareth is who they hope he is. They are eager to answer one question that, that Matthew in particular in the Gospels uh, seems concerned with. They are eager to answer this question, could this be the son of David? Could this be the guy? They want to know. So the background explains the commotion surrounding Jesus' appearance. The background also explains their concern with Jesus' credentials. In order to be the son of David, you have to demonstrate that you're from the line of David. That's why many writers in the Bible who are all Jewish make a point of proving Jesus' Davidic heritage. Both Matthew and Luke take pains to include a genealogy, which is basically a family tree, uh, tracing Jesus back to David. As Matthew writes in chapter 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then goes on to present the family tree to list a history of Jesus' ancestry back to David. I mean, as far as Israel is concerned, Jesus could be a super impressive miracle worker. Uh, he could be just a fantastic teacher, but if he's not from the line of David, he ain't no king. So the background explains the Jews' commotion over Jesus' appearance, uh, their concern with his credentials. But the background explains something else, too, something even more important. The background explains the Jews' confusion over Jesus' ministry. You see, the people of Israel were genuinely perplexed when this Jesus, the apparent son of David, fails to conform to their expectations. Those who still believed really did think that when the son of David returned, he would come as the mighty warrior and the shrewd politician that they believed he would need to be. I mean, how else would Israel overturn Rome except by war, except by the sword? That was the people's expectation. Even some of Jesus' disciples signed up to follow him, expecting to have to go to battle. Jesus' lead disciple Peter carried a sword with him. Why? because he expected to have to use it. As the alleged son of David, Jesus was expected to mount his steed and lead Israel to glory after enduring centuries of humiliation, but then he did anything but. In fact, he did the opposite. What did he do? Well, he tells Peter to put his sword away. He tells the, his followers to love their enemies, including the Romans, 
He heals children of Roman soldiers. He tells Jewish zealots and Pharisees to cool their jets. He rides into Jerusalem, but on a donkey, not a majestic steed. It's actually kind of funny. Everyone's thinking that the Messiah is going to arrive to Jerusalem at the head of an army on top of a steed, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey with fishermen behind him. And everyone's shouting, the son of David is here. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, you guys don't get it. I'm riding on a donkey, come on. I mean, yeah, he walks around uh, telling stories and offering forgiveness, not drawing up battle plans. Yes, he comes from the line of David. Yes, he does miracles. Yes, he drives out demons. But at no point, at no point does he look like the sort of Messiah that the Jews expected. What's going on, they wonder. We've been waiting for the son of David for a thousand years. Here he is, and he tells us to love our enemies and lay down our swords. Maybe he'll change his tune, they think. Maybe he's like building to something. Maybe he'll like realize that this love and peace thing is not going to work with the Romans. You know, just give him time, they think. But then something else happens, something crazier than the sum total of everything everything else crazy that he has done already. Then he dies. Then the son of David dies. He hangs around for a few years, and he's killed at the hands of the Romans. He plays the Game of Thrones, and he loses. That wasn't supposed to happen. How could the returning son of David suffer and die on a cross at the hands of his enemies? Like I said, the Jews are confused. Honestly, this is actually why Jesus did not like the title son of David. He didn't use it because the title had too much baggage built into it. When people thought about the returning son of David, they had a certain type of leader in mind, a sword-wielding, swashbuckling, conquering hero who would lead them to greatness. Jesus knew that he was the son of David, but he knew he had a different mission, a spiritual mission, not a political one. He came to forgive sinners, not judge them. He came to empower people with the spirit, not equip them with arms. That's why didn't Jesus, Jesus didn't use the title, because people's expectations didn't match up with the reality of who he knew that he was. Now, what does all this mean for us? That's the background to the title Son of David and what it explains regarding the commotion surrounding his arrival and his credentials and their confusion. But so what? As far as you and I are concerned. Let's get a little selfish for a moment and talk application. What does all this mean for us? I mean, most of us here aren't Jewish, so what does it matter that Jesus may or may not have been the son of David? Well, it actually means a lot. And let me briefly mention a couple quick lessons of application before we close in worship. First, the fact that Jesus came as the son of David means this. It means that Jesus confounds our expectations of the sort of leader we think we want. Jesus confounds our expectations of the sort of leader we think we want. Like I said, Jesus was something of a disappointment when it came to Israel's expectations for the son of David. People were confused by him. They were expecting him to be one way, and then he came as this other way. This happens a lot when people meet their leaders. For example, I've heard that uh, when people met Martin Luther King Jr. in person, 
Oftentimes, their first reaction was not something they were expecting. They didn't expect him to be so short. He was actually barely five foot seven. It took people a while to get over their expectations, their heightism, of the tall leader that they thought he was. I mean, when his wife Coretta uh, first met Dr. King, she actually said that she found this short little man kind of unimpressive. I mean, she got over it. It wasn't a big leave to get over. It's like when people uh, want to meet the pastor of Rooftop, and they meet me. <laughs> While he's still dealing with his disappointment. You know. they, they meet me, like, oh, are you the, like, the, the youth pastor of Rooftop? Are you, you like with the homeless ministry? Are they, you like in the homeless ministry? <laughs> no, no, I'm the pastor of Rooftop. Oh, oh. That's great. That's good. Good for you, right? Good for you. <laughs> when it comes to our leaders, we have a lot of expectations and oftentimes we are disappointed. Israel was not expecting the son of David to be a peace-talking, enemy-loving carpenter. They wanted Jesus to rally the troops and instead he blessed the children they were always asking him, hey, when are you going to like, get the battle going here? And Jesus would say, hey, let's, okay, come here, come here, come here. I'm going to tell you a story about some sheep. And there's this other story about this farmer. It's a great story. You're going to love the story about the farmer. He was constantly defying their expectations. Even some of his biggest supporters had doubts. Like John the Baptist, a big supporter of Jesus, actually was Jesus' first cousin. And John the Baptist was a big supporter, really wanted to believe in Jesus, but, but as Jesus' ministry progressed, even he started having questions and doubts. He, he actually sent some of his followers to Jesus with this question. The question was, are you the one who is to come? Because we really want you to be the one who is to come, but, but we, got, we got some questions. Should we wait for another? So somebody else, maybe, that we should wait for? And Jesus said, no, 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 it's me. I'm not the problem. You're the problem. The lesson here is that Jesus did not come as the Messiah we want. He came as the Messiah we need. He came to show us forgiveness and grace because he knew that's what we needed. We wanted him to destroy our enemies, but then, darn it, he went and died for them. Frankly, many of us don't like this about Jesus. We want him to be stronger, taller, better dressed, more violent, more assertive. We want him to solve our problems and get rid of people who stand in our way. Jesus did not come to do that. He came to show us love and sacrifice and peace. And when Jesus fails to, uh, fails to conform to our expectations, what do we oftentimes do? When Jesus fails to conform to our expectations, what do we do? Well, we do a couple things. Sometimes we change him. We turn him into the more sort of Messiah we want him to be. We'll dress him up a little bit. We'll give him our opinions. Or we do what John the Baptist was tempted to do. We look for another. We look for another Messiah. This is actually what many of us do here in America when we size up our favorite political candidates. We are looking for a politician who can do a better job taking care of us than we think Jesus can do. That's actually exactly what's going on right now as we enter election season. I don't know if you've realized this, but we have officially entered election season. 
We're like characters in Game of Thrones looking to back the best candidate for the throne. That's what's happening right now. It's Game of Thrones. It happens every four years. The question many of us are asking ourselves is which candidate has the best chance of restoring us to our definition of greatness? Which candidate, Republican or Democrat, is more likely to defeat our enemies and make our lives easier? If we're really honest with ourselves, if we are really honest with ourselves, many of our political affiliations are nothing more than dissatisfaction with Jesus. Jesus teaches us to love, serve, and forgive our enemies regardless of their skin color, immigrant status, or sexual or gender identity. Some of us don't want to do that. We never will, so we will wait for another. We will find a leader who conforms to our expectations and tells us what we want to hear. I'm not saying we can't vote for our favorite candidate of either party. We should. We should be involved. I'm just saying that the only leader who can really make us great again is Jesus Christ. And it is through love, service, and sacrifice and nothing else. Period. That's your first point of application. Your second one, a little simpler, maybe less provocative, is this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Like I said, when uh, Jesus arrived, it had been a thousand years since the reign of David, 600 years since the last of his descendants sat on the throne. If you don't realize this, 600 years is a long time. 600 years ago, uh, Columbus hadn't yet sailed the ocean blue. 600 years ago, the Protestant Reformation hadn't even started. 600 years ago, Galileo had like, looked up through the first telescope and, and seen the starry heavens. That was 600 years ago. That's how long Israel had been without a rightful king. How did they not give up over 600 years? How does anybody not give up waiting after 600 years? I mean, get a clue, Israel. He's not coming. There is no rightful heir. But by faith, many in Israel didn't give up. They couldn't. And finally, the rightful heir comes. Like I said, this explains their reaction, their anticipation, the commotion. They followed Jesus everywhere he went because they want to know if this was the guy. In the Gospel of Luke, a man named Zechariah, maybe you know the story of Zechariah. Zechariah hears about Jesus' arrival, and when he hears that the baby Jesus, the baby king, has, has come, Zechariah like, drops everything he's doing, and he starts singing. Here's what he sings. He says, Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Everywhere that Jesus went, people would do this. They would just start singing. Now you can tell that Zechariah has some expectations here of what he thinks the Messiah is going to do. He, he prays, he sings that the Messiah is going to deliver them from their, from their enemies. He's, he's still thinking of the Messiah as a conquering, violent Messiah. He's going to have to deal with that, as we all will have to deal with that. But at least Zechariah did not give up waiting. 
Even after 600 years, he didn't give up hope that the rightful heir would return. And here's the kicker, neither should we. Even though we've waited longer. I mean, if 600 years is a long time, imagine what 2,000 feels like. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose again. It has been 2,000 years since he promised to return on the clouds. It has been 2,000 years since he promised to uh, defeat evil and sickness and and disease once and for all. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus promised to raise our loved ones from the dead. 2,000 years is a long time. Every day makes it longer. It's hard to wait, right? Like the nation of Israel, we pray, how long, O Lord? Or as I pray, how friggin' long, O Lord? Some of you might give up while waiting. Some of us have. Most of us may die while waiting. Some of us might get sick of waiting and decide to take things into our own hands. We might think, well, if Jesus isn't going to claim the Iron Throne, we'll do it for ourselves. If Jesus isn't going to take charge, well, then I will. I'll take charge of my life. I'll decide what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I'm my own king. But the Iron Throne is not ours. It's his. It always has been. It always will be. And here's the thing. He sits on it. He sits on it even now. He sits on the Iron Throne in heaven, ruling the earth, attended by angels and saints. Meanwhile, we... Wait for him to return as promised. And he will. He will part the clouds and we will see him. We will all see him sitting on the throne. When Jesus came as the prophesied son of God 2,000 years ago, he was God's emphatic statement that he keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. It might take him some time, but he keeps his promises Promises to restore his people and bring heaven to earth. Promises to rid our lives of sin and conflict and sickness. Those are promises that he intends to keep, to return as the rightful heir to the iron throne of David. Until then, we wait. And we hope. And we pray. But we must not give up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the the life and the ministry of Jesus which challenges my expectations for the sort of leader I want you to be in my life. While I would prefer for you to ride all over the world slaughtering my enemies, you Show me the God that you really are. God of love and grace. Sacrifice. Those are hard expectations to have to deal with. And I also hold on to what your son's arrival means in terms of uh, honoring the promises that you have made to us. Here we sit 2,000 years later 
honestly wondering if the promises are real, if the promises are true. It's been a long time. And it's easy to give up on hope. But we believe, I believe, in the reality of the life and the ministry and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we believe in the reality of his return. Give us hope, patience, as we wait. Give us your love and your grace to serve our neighbors, our family members, our loved ones, our enemies, with all the love and the grace that Jesus Christ showed while here on earth. Thank you for this morning, our opportunity to worship you, your son, the son of David. Thank you for our visitors. Thank you for family members and friends. Help us continue to love and serve them. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again from the dead and by the power of your Holy Spirit.